Welcome to GBMA Education's Biosimilar podcast series. Biological medicines have revolutionised the treatment of a number of diseases. In Australia, the increased use of biosimilar brands of biological medicines could help to facilitate earlier access for patients in Australia or to help fund new life-changing and innovative treatments. In this, the second episode in a series of 12 podcasts, Professor Paul Bird will share his experience with biosimilar medicines from a rheumatologist's perspective and their practical impacts. Welcome, Professor Bird, and thank you for participating in GBMA Education's Biosimilar Podcast. Firstly, when did you first use a biosimilar medicine? I first chose to prescribe biosimilars in May 2017, soon after Brenzis became available as a biosimilar alternative to um, Embril in the Atanasept uh, group. And I did that because at the time we were doing a study and we were trying to determine whether we felt that under the circumstances of a switch, and so we were switching patients from an originator to the biosimilar, would there be equivalent safety efficacy and immunogenicity. And also as part of that study, we were checking using an email to patients whether at the pharmacy, they, what, what they were actually being prescribed. So were they, was a flagging occurring? How do you explain what a biosimilar medicine is to a patient being switched? I usually use the word copy. Uh, I think copy's not a bad way to, to help them understand it. I try not to avoid, I try to avoid this, the um, situation of saying it's a generic because it's not actually like that. I need them to understand it's a copy of a sophisticated medication. And as far as we know, to date, there's no difference between this and the originator from studies that have been done around the world and in Australia. And then I usually explain to them, we're doing this switch as part of a study to check whether they're in the real world, whether these trial results are borne out. And that's one way that patients, if they're, if they're altruistic, will, um, will uh, agree to do it. Now, even patients who are altruistic, Often when it's your health that's being talked about and I'm initiating a switch, um, they might say, no, I don't want to do it. And, and I think that's absolutely reasonable as well. I wonder what I would do if someone said, look, I want you to do a clinical study and I'm happy on the originator and I've got a switch and my physician can't guarantee because he or she is actually testing what's going to happen by nature of the study. I wonder what I'd do. I wonder what I'd do if it was a family member. I probably would say stay on the originator if they bought me the information. Have you noticed any difference in outcomes between the biosimilar and the reference product? So no differences in outcomes noted between biosimilars and reference products, but my sample is small as a clinician. I don't routinely prescribe a lot of biosimilars, but if we look beyond my experience, for example, to a study like the Norswich study, which was published in The Lancet in 2017. Now in that study, the Norwegian team switched patients from the originator, uh, Remicade, to a, a biosimilar in, across a range of diseases, Crohn's disease, um, rheumatoid arthritis, spondyloarthropathy. And at the end of that study, which was a very large study, they found no difference in efficacy, safety, and immunogenicity between the groups. They used a non-inferiority uh, study type. And so that was reassuring data. So I can extrapolate to that sort of data to say, well, it does appear that there does not appear to be a great difference between a biosimilar and an originator. But in, and in my experience, that's reflected, but remembering that my experience at this point in time is small. How broadly do you use biosimilar medicines in your practice? My use of biosimilars is in a small group and that would always be under, the, uh, under a new initiation. So I, I would not switch people and mainly it's just practicalities. To spend extra time to explain to someone why I'm affecting this in terms of economic outcome 
and that it probably won't change their outcome. Um, it's actually a lot easier just to continue the originator in terms of time management, uh, unsettling the patient. That's an unsettling thing to do to someone who's stable on a compound and then to say to them, well, I'm going to switch you, but I can't give them a good reason why I'm doing that. You know, it makes them think, well, why, what's he doing? Why is he changing things around? Things are going well. So there's a lot of things that go into that decision that are not just economic. They're not about safety, efficacy, immunogenicity, because we're reasonably convinced of those things. It's more about the um, message we're giving to patients and the messages we're getting from patients about their concerns surrounding biosimilars. What information would you provide to a patient starting on a biosimilar medicine? So when I'm uh, prescribing a biosimilar, I make it clear to the patient that this is not the original form of the compound, that that was a, a different medication, and that I'm prescribing the biosimilar. And we know that there's data there showing that it is equally effective, safe, and won't cause any allergic reactions. I use that in terms of immunogenicity, so I use a term that they can understand better. Um, and so that I, I, am, I am recommending under those circumstances that they move to that. And then we, then we run into that unusual question they ask is why, why are you using this one and not the originator? And I've already covered off some of the things that, that we try and discuss with them. And I usually ask them to do it under the umbrella of a study, which is really altruistic of patients to do because they'll, they'll often say, well, okay, if this means more medications available and you're doing a specific study, I will do that. I find it different in practice if I try and switch and I'm not actually doing a study, people then I find it very hard to answer the question as to why I'm, I, would, I would consider switching. Do patients tend to have concerns? Patients generally express concern about um, medications that aren't originators. And we have that data from uh, the generic molecules that have been available in Australia and lots of countries for a long time. So often there'll be an experience that a patient has had or a relative have had, or they've read something in the media that has indicated that the use of a generic drug, say a blood pressure drug or a, a mood altering drug, an antidepressant, has led to adverse consequences in someone. And so they will proudly say, I always get the original. And so some of that has spilled over into the biosimilar uh, and uh, the biosimilar market, I guess. So that patients often ask, when, when we talk to them about switching to a biosimilar, uh, we can reassure them with the data and say this is a similar compound, it's been tested, the Therapeutic Goods the Administration has said, yes, this is safe to do this, and they'll say, but why am I doing this? And I have to ask myself why. They will say to me, uh, is it cheaper for me? Well, the answer is no. Uh, they ask, does it hurt less when I give it? And I say, well, no. Um, is there a you know, reduction in cost overall? Um, they say to the government and we say, no, the cost is the same. We try to explain to people, of course, that by having more drugs in the market, there's more competition and that may drive price down. But at the bedside for patients, that doesn't have a lot of resonance. I mean, people are worried about, quite rightly, what's going to happen to me if I switch? Why should I switch? Why is my doctor suggesting that I switch? How do you address the concerns? Usually face-to-face, -face, it takes some time to address the concerns, and I think this is a practical point about biosimilars in rheumatology. When we're, we're moving from patient to patient, most um, rheumatologists are in private practice, and when you have to think about switching to a biosimilar, you undertake a lot of explanation about how the drug is made, how it's assessed, how it is similar, and it takes time. And so not only are you getting an unsettling uh, situation with the patient, you're taking a lot more time to explain and you are asking yourself why and the patient is asking why. So all those barriers exist before you even consider 
uh, changing to a biosimilar. Now, if the biosimilar was cheaper, if there was an advantage, you know, apart from the economic advantage we see globally, which is a, a, an important goal, but one very difficult to convey at the bedside. And so I think that's one of the barriers in rheumatology, uh, in my view, is that many rheumatologists think, this is gonna take a heck of a long time. It's gonna unsettle the patient. I can't see an advantage. Let's just keep going with the same one. When you write a prescription for a biological medicine, do you specify a brand? Always specify a brand when I write the prescription now, because I, I think it's really important because I don't want to be responsible for a switch that causes a problem for, for a patient. So I see it, as, see it as my responsibility that if I want that originated to be given to the patient, that I should indicate that on the paperwork. Can you comment on biosimilar medicines in rheumatology? Yeah, so I think rheumatologists understand the science. I don't think we have a problem with the science, but it's not the science, it's the human factor. And you, you've seen it in some of the discussion that we've used today in that um, it's rheumatologist human factor, it's the patient human factor. It's the barriers that are there, it's not the barriers in the science that stop rheumatologists prescribing. What objections have you encountered in your practice? It's certainly apparent that rheumatology, that well, the uptake of biosimilars in rheumatology is lower than, for example, in uh, inflammatory bowel disease, gastroenterology and oncology. And there might be a number of reasons we can, we can hypothesise for that. And these are just hypotheses. I don't know uh, absolutely why. But in rheumatology, we live in a subcutaneous world. Many of our drugs are either um, subcutaneous and some are intravenous. So, but by and large, most patients are on subcutaneous medications. And so they're administering those at home or they're being shown how to administer them by nurses who come out to them. And so you can see that by initiating a switch from an originator to a biosimilar, adds a level of complexity and uncertainty for the patient that's just not required. If a patient's having an intravenous medication in hospital and the hospital formally changes, well, that's just going to change across the board. And, and that may be the case in, uh, for example, in gastroenterology where many patients are on intravenous therapy and it may be also the case in oncology. So I think it's one reason why there hasn't been a very high uptake in rheumatology. Also, we have an enormous choice in rheumatology of agents. There's a very, the menu is very, very full. So choosing between agents is often the, uh, the, the challenge for us, not choosing should I go to a biosimilar it's more, do I change to a different mode of action? Do I change um, you know, a different form of delivery of this medication? Not the question about biosimilars. It's low order for most rheumatologists, I think. Can you comment on the clinical trial program of a biosimilar medicine? Biosimilars undergo a rigorous um, evaluation program. It's not exactly the same as the originator who, runs, who will run through several uh, iterations of phase programs, phase one, two, three, four, for example. But a biosimilar will not skip, but will be able to circumvent some of those phases because it's a, a, a copy of the original. So it's not to say that the TGA is not looking for safety, efficacy, and similar immunogenicity compared to the originator. That benchmark is still there and has to be achieved before the biosimilar uh, can be approved. But there is a different way that biosimilars are assessed compared to originators. How much experience do we have with biosimilar medicine? Biosimilars have been around now for about 10 years, maybe longer, um, certainly a large number in Europe, United States and Australia. And so we, I think as rheumatologists, and certainly I am feeling comfortable in, the, in terms of the science, 
Um, and in terms of the economics, I can understand the economics by having a, um, com a competitor in the marketplace. Hopefully we can drive price down and that means more patients have access to medication. So for every doctor, that makes sense. The problem is at the moment is finding reasons to prescribe. And again, coming back to that human factor, it's not the science. I see biosimilars in the future becoming more available, hopefully a lot cheaper so that we can actually get patients access to them more, more, uh, more early in their disease course, and that would be my goal for biosimilars long-term. But right at the moment, when you've got a price point that is still very high and out of most, most patients' reach, it's very hard to find a reason to prescribe, apart from that, that understanding of the general economics. Biosimilars in the future, I see them being a big part of the landscape. I hope as they become cheaper, there's much more ready access for patients earlier. Thank you, Professor Bird, for joining us. We appreciate your time. For those listening online, the next podcast in our series by GBMA Education will be with Professor Jeff Scher, who will talk about his history and experience with biosimilar medicines in haematology. If you would like to know more about biosimilar medicines in Australia, please visit the Biosimilar Hub at www.biosimilarhub.com.au.